to Stories Worth Telling. I'm Rana Dietrich. There are stories worth telling, amazing and beautiful stories that deserve to be told. And here's why. If we would but hear them, remember them, resurrect them, we would find ourselves strangely stronger, braver, wiser, more tender, more and more ourselves. So that's what I do. I tell those stories, ones worth telling, ones that deserve to be told. Some of them you've probably heard before, maybe just not quite like this. Others you've probably never heard, and all of them will sound so profoundly familiar that you'll wonder if truly the story I'm telling is yours, or at least the one you believe deep in your bones is the one you're meant to live. May it be so. Today's story worth telling is different than what I have offered here on this podcast in the past, and it's something I'm hugely pleased and proud to be able to provide to you today. Uh, Today is World Storytelling Day, March 20th of 2017, and this is a collaborative combined storytelling slash piece of writing that four of us have written together, Julie Day. Tanya Geisler, Amy Palco, and myself have been part of a writing group for nearly three years now. And we have over time developed a mode of writing that we call braided writing that we love. And it has created some really powerful content uh, for all of us individually, as well as what we have created collectively. And today, in honor of World Storytelling Day, I am making available one of these pieces. Uh, All of us have posted it on our websites today and on Facebook and various forms of social media, but it felt appropriate and perfect for me to make it available on this podcast. Because indeed, this This is a story worth telling. The title of this piece is called Limbed, and so first you'll hear Tanya's voice, then Amy's, then mine, then Julie's, then Tanya's finishing things up. I hope you enjoy it. Super powerful stuff, and definitely, as I said before, a story worth telling. My car slowed to a crawl as I watched him leave his house, soccer ball in hand. This young man with a boyish face and rumpled hair in a varsity jacket. Maybe 20, but a shy grin when he saw her made me think him to be 12. When she saw him, her whole body changed, stiffened and softened all at once. He approached her, tender, nervous, and measured, playing it cool, but overheated with longing. From the rearview mirror, I saw them fade in the distance, neighbors hoping to be more their bodies craning to connect. And I wanted to know what would become of them, these two young people, their lives limbed by adulthood, or were they adults limbed by youth? It made me think of my own 20-year-old self. I remember the dress I wore, the orange one with the rudimentary batik designs he said looked like Pac-Man, my breasts young and perky, my limbs long and conscious, my essence assured and yet unsure, stiff, and soft. He said he did a double take as he drove by. 
unable to believe his good fortune, that I was his, that I had picked him just as he had picked me. And I remember him, his golden hair soft like corn silk, the scent of his scalp mingled with wintermint and the leather of his varsity jacket, the smell of a home unlike the home I'd already known, the smell of him being mine and mine alone. I remember the way he said my name, like it was the most delicious and exotic mouthful he'd ever savored, like he never wanted to taste another name ever, ever, ever again. And we didn't know, of course. We didn't know what was ahead and what was to come. We didn't know that we didn't belong to each other, even as we belonged to each other. We didn't know, couldn't know, that though we believed we could complete each other, that there would always be places we couldn't fill for each other, wouldn't fill for each other, no matter how furiously we made love, no matter how vehemently we professed our devotion to each other, no matter what promises piled softly at the foot of the bed, because our adulthood being limbed by youth meant we didn't know what promises really meant, really, really meant, like stick a needle in your eye meant. We weren't to blame. We were never taught what it meant to keep promises to our own selves, let alone to others. This is true of all of us, I'm afraid. Our inability to keep our promises to ourselves is an epidemic, which, of course, is the cause of the whole that cannot and will not be filled. Oh, we try to fill it, Greedily, we scarf down sex and promises and food and alcohol and shopping and God and money and plastic and beliefs about belonging and meds like an insatiable Pac-Man on a bender. We lock onto acquisition and believe that we own one another, that we own land, that we own owning, and that we deserve it, all of it, both sides of the betrayal, that we deserve to unkeep our promises, that we deserve to feel the pain of a promise unkept. We don't, you know. Because a promise is a promise. As she lay dying, I promised her I would take care of him. That she could leave now because I would take care of him and that I would be bolstered by the care he would take of me. She knew that these were two promises I simply couldn't keep. Likely because she had seen all the ways I'd not kept promises to myself my whole life. So she waited until I left the room to die. I know it. I know she didn't want to leave with her life limbed by yet another lie or two. I'm seeing this now for the first time. This grief, this sadness, this loss reminds me of light, of hope, of another way. I feel like the young man approaching the young woman. I feel like him surveying me. I feel on the precipice of a new love, a new desire one worthy of watching from the rearview mirror. It starts with a promise. I will complete me. I will belong to me. I will own myself. This is my work to do. I will keep this promise. And in doing so, I know what will become of me. Limbed by love, I'll know. There is an old fairy tale in Scotland, not the Disney kind, the real kind, the kind which is brutal and ambivalent and lusty and full of taboos. For truly the fey folk are nothing if not transgressive. Transgressive and tricksy as they undermine all the boundaries 
of what you and me know to be true and good and right. Their world is said to limb our own, that the two exist side by side, and that occasionally, on specific dates especially, the veils thin and the inhabitants of both find themselves inadvertently wandering into the other, and sometimes not so inadvertently, sometimes with intent. So this story in particular, we follow our protagonist, Janet, as she wanders through the woodlands of her home when she encounters a beautiful young man, Tamlin. His corn silk hair begs to be touched, and his mouth, his mouth calls to her mouth, his lips to her lips. They fall to the forest floor, clasped in one another's arms, and soon the sounds of their pleasure disturbs the crows in the treetops, black wings flapping noisily against a grey sky, messengers between here and beyond, a union between two bodies of two worlds, limbed. When Janet returns home, it is with child. This tiny spark of new life, hidden deep in her womb, begins to make its presence felt, as her nausea overwhelms her, and her skirts begin to feel too tight. Confessing to her nursemaid her suspicion that the father of her unborn is one of the fae, this wise woman of the old ways tells her that to rid herself of this child, she must eat a flower that grows in the woodlands that edge her father's land. It is while she is searching for the flower, the sunlight streaming through the trees, illuminating the tiny wings of tiny insects, that she is accosted by the same beautiful young man who had introduced her to her desire, her heat, her body's longing to be stroked and pushed and parted and entered. Noticing the flower in her hand, he confronts her and she confesses her condition. And he tells her that he was not always of the Fae, that he had once been a mortal man, and he'd been captured by the Queen of the Fae and forced to live in the other world, the one that lies curled around the back of our own. He tells her that the procession of the Fae will be passing through her father's land that evening, and that when she saw him, she should pull him from his horse and hold fast. He said that the Fae would try to get her to release him, that he would change shape many times, but not to be afraid, as he would never harm her. When he turned into a burning coal, red hot from the heart of a fire, that she should throw him in the well, and that he would emerge, naked and released from the spell. She makes him a promise. She gives him her word. And so that evening, she returns to the woodland to wait. It is not too long before the procession of the Fae appears before her, the beautiful and the abhorrent, the wonderful and the strange, the exotic and the ordinary, all passed by in front of her as she shrunk back further into her, into her hiding place beneath the branches of an old hawthorn tree. But then she saw him, and she felt her whole body stiffen and soften all at once. She knew that if she wanted him, if she wanted to ever feel again the beauty of his body entering her body, to taste the exquisite bliss of her name on his tongue, 
then she would need to act now. Catching him off balance, she pulled him from his horse and he fell to the ground, quickly taking her with him, the two rolling in the long wet grass. Instantly, he began to shift form as the fae quickly realised her intentions. A snake, a wild boar, a hedgehog, a bull, a salamander. But she held on, for a promise is a promise. Finally, he turned into a burning red piece of coal and she threw him into the well. And yes, he emerged from the water free, released and as naked as the day he was born. Naturally, they lived happily ever after, because that's what happens at the end of fairy stories, right? Even the ones not co-opted by Disney. She kept her promise, so she got the guy. But here's the thing about fairy tales. Fairy tales are not real life. They are not the stories of men and women in this world, in this day, in this time, when we make promise after promise that we struggle to keep. Impossible promises. Promises like, I will love you forever and a day. Or, I will be yours and yours only till death do us part. Or, I will hold the fuck on no matter what. No matter what. Fairy tales give us hope that the promises can be kept and that they're not all limbed by the conditions of their own breaking. Even when they are. I wonder sometimes about Janet and her love Tamlin. I wonder how it was to adjust to one another when the drama had passed and the mundane began. How it felt for Tam to live in this ordinary world after so many years with the Fae. Did they bicker over whose turn it was to do the dishes? Or a clash when their libidos veered off in opposite directions? Or feel hurt when one unfeelingly commented on the other's weight gain. And I wonder too whether they kept promises to one another or if Janet had used up all her commitment in that one shining moment of faith and strength. Or did she get to a point in her life when her children all grown strong and tall and gone that she chose to make promises to herself that she decided were more important than those she made when she was a girl and knew nothing of the world, knew nothing of relationships, knew nothing of what promises really meant, really, really meant. Did she release herself from the bonds and choose instead to make a promise to belong to herself? Did she? Because that, I feel, would be the truly transgressive fairy story, no? The hero and heroine, our love interests, discovered that relationships are really fucking hard and that promises get broken all the time and that maybe, just maybe, there is another way to be in relationship to one another. Which isn't to say that we don't hold the fuck on or love the other furiously, ferociously, fully, till death do us part. But that a new way of being starts with a different kind of promise. A promise to complete oneself a promise to belong to oneself, a promise to own oneself. And from this place, this place of completion, belonging and authority, we connect with the other on new terms, limbed by love 
and rooted in our own becoming. The two of them stood together, hands clasped and eyes locked. Their faces were so radiant and their love so pure that everyone who witnessed their promises, their vows, that endless kiss, would later say they'd never experienced anything like it before or since, that it was the most surprising yet perfect ceremony. They would later say that something happened that day, something sacred, something just beyond human, something miraculous. But none of them would be able to say quite why, quite what, quite how it was that this wedding was so different and so perfect and so unnerving and so unforgettable. To a person, even love's skeptics, everyone there was captivated and seduced by the sheer fervor of what was expressed, the hope that could not be contained or constrained. She wore a gossamer gown that somehow on her looked like the most natural thing in the world and from a world we've only dreamed. He wore a suit that somehow on him looked like the adornment of the gods. She glided toward him like a queen, so certain and sure, and he waited for her, his posture tall and regal, but somehow conveying a deep and reverential bow to her beauty, her presence, the privilege of her nearness. The room was hushed as they turned toward one another and began to speak. She said, I promise to love myself, then him, and I myself. He said, I will forsake all others and promise to keep myself only unto myself as long as I shall live. Then she, and I the same. She said, I promise to have and hold myself from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I will love and cherish me. He said, I promise all of this as well. She said, in token and pledge of this vow to myself, I give myself this ring, a symbol of my love and faith in and for myself. She placed the ring on her own finger, held her hand out proudly to herself, and smiled at the beautiful diamond that sparkled on her hand. He said, In token and pledge of this vow to myself, I give myself this ring, a symbol of my love and faith in and for myself. And just like her, he looked at his hand and blushed, so undone by the power of this stated and visible commitment. Then, in perfect unison, their voices distinguishable and strong, everyone heard them say, This day, before each other, family and friends, I take this pledge. This day and every day that follows, I vow to renew and sustain this covenant, this commitment, this promise, limbed by me. It is in this, and only this, that I show my love to you. Can you imagine? There is a phenomena in conservative Christian circles in which fathers promise to shield and protect their daughters by securing their virginity until marriage. To celebrate such, purity balls are held. They rival the best fairy tales, 
girls in gowns, men in tuxedos, delicious food, a night of dancing, and vows spoken, promises made. The father says, I choose before God to cover my daughter as her authority and protection in the area of purity. I will be pure in my own life as a man, husband, and father. I will be a man of integrity and accountability as I lead, guide, and pray over my daughter and my family as the high priest in my home. She says, nothing. Then, in token and pledge, a gift is given, a charm bracelet or necklace in the shape of a heart for her, a key that fits into its center for him. He keeps the key until the day he presents it and his presumed chaste daughter to her husband on their wedding day. Can you imagine? Unknowingly, the girl's worth is equated and defined by her father's promise. She is limbed by fairy tale, not real life. And this story, nothing like Cinderella or even Janet and Tam Lynn, far more like that of Bluebeard with that damn key, her potential end, will be years in its telling before she realizes what has happened, before she wakes up from that horrible spell, before she realizes that those promises should have never been made, that they were only hers to keep or break, before she can acknowledge that she is not safe, secure, and whole. In fact, just the opposite. Though a blatant example, it is not these young girls alone who fall prey to the belief that their promise to another is what ultimately defines their value. Nor are they the only ones who believe the fantasy that promises made to them are worth far more than the ones they might make to themselves. One Valentine's Day evening many, many years ago, at exactly the moment in which the music's heart-stopping crescendo began, she took her father's arm, walked through the doors of the narthex, and stepped onto the carpeted aisle. The long chiffon bow as train trailed behind her white silk gown as the tendrils of beads and sequins on her shoulders caught the candle's light. She gripped the long-stemmed single calla lily she had laid perfectly over the once-white, now-yellowed leather Bible that her mother had carried at her wedding and her mother before her. She caught a glimpse of her sister's tears just before she saw him. Then, blinded by his dress-white uniform with its gold braid and red-ribboned medals, she kissed her father on the cheek, stepped forward one more time, and took his hands in hers. It was his second marriage, 20-plus years already lived with another wife, another family, two children now grown and gone, neither of whom attended their ceremony. Everyone knew he'd made promises he'd not kept, but as he told the story, she broke their vows when she broke his heart and said, no more. Not one of these thoughts entered her mind that night. Past promises broken were just that, past these promises, her promises, would be different. She would be different. He would be. She'd never leave, nor would he. She'd keep his heart safe. He'd offer her the same. She'd love him forever and ever, amen, and him, her. Yes, to love, honor, and cherish, even obey. Yes, 
till death do us part. She promised herself to him, certain that in so doing, she would be made safe, secure, and whole, limbed by promises, as though they were enough. They weren't. Faulty constructs to begin with, their promises were brokered with unspoken but assumed terms and conditions designed to provide something of elusive substance to two insecure people. Two insecure people who were ravenously hungry to find in another what they didn't have within themselves. I should know. That bride was me. Those promises were mine. And 15 years later, I said the words he'd heard once before. No more. Because 15 years later, fairy tale illusions long gone, I realized that I was the only one who could make me safe, secure, and whole. That fairy tale and illusion was just that. Not too long ago, I read about a woman who created a ritual to celebrate her marriage to herself. It was complete with candles, pre-written vows, and a ruby ring. She stated that she would never abandon herself, no matter who or what came into her life, that she would stay conscious and nourish her power, her voice, her truth, that she would remain deeply committed to herself from that day forward, limbed by love for her very self. Something in me resonates with this, but it doesn't feel like enough. Despite all the promises made and all those broken, I still want to make a promise to another. And I want a promise made to me. I want that love worth watching from the rearview mirror. I want the gossamer gown in the gorgeous sky. The one who wants me to make and keep promises to myself and him as he does the same. I am not naive. Promises are tricksy things about as hard to hold on to as Tam Lin, while he conforms and contorts into shapes unknown, unexpected, even frightening. They are as seductive as the guy in the leather jacket with the corn silk hair to the girl in an orange batik dress who is young, innocent, and full of, well, promise. They are made and misused, like daughters with fathers and locked hearts with keys, They are profoundly well-intended, like a woman who vows to herself what only she can provide. And they are ever aspirational, sacred, just beyond human, even miraculous. Whether made to another or to ourselves or both, they are precious and fragile. They break and break us. It makes one wonder if they're even worth it. Yes, it makes me wonder and wrestle and wish and wistfully gaze into my heart all the shattered pieces, all the far from fairy tale like stories, all the broken promises, every lock long gone, every key long lost, but still it beats. My heart pulses, it dreams and it hopes. I do, even now, even still, always. So I'll keep accumulating images of wedding gowns and beautiful rings and bouquets that do not include calla lilies on my Pinterest board. I'll not be all that concerned with chastity. I'll pay more attention to my sister's tears. 
And yes, I'll keep making promises to me and undoubtedly others. Because here's the thing. Despite it all, there is one promise that has never been broken. The promise of hope. Hope keeps me safe, secure, and whole. Hope limbs and hope stays forever and ever. Amen. I awaken halfway from a dream unlike most. Warm in my soft sheets, half awake with the world of matter curled around my back body. I know I am still dreaming. I lounge in the in-between as the dream world seeps into the physical world. The veil is thin, and I exist between both. I feel my dream body move in my physical cells, lithe, fluid as water, palpably glowing with light. I am happy and feel whole as I dance on the earth's skin, feet on moss, breath mixing with mist, light emanating from within. I feel distinctively me in a way I've never felt before in the incompleteness of this physical world, where I'm not so aware of the layers of self that exist beyond the awareness of the five senses. I feel of the fertile earth. I feel so close to her bones. I don't see her. I am her. And in this dream, she moves me. She sways my hips, extends my arms in graceful arcs, and rises up as the root of my belly laugh. This sound of pleasure causes another in my dream to laugh even more loudly in response, and soon we are on the ground beyond any kind of control, belly laughing. We've been set free, all desire let loose. And in this reverie, I am lusty and full of taboo, undermining all the imagined hardened boundaries I was taught of what it is to be true and good and right. My movements rise from life itself, where there is no concept of true and good and right, where nothing is owned, where flesh is simply limbed by love. Like the fae, I am transgressive. Slowly the dream world fades back into itself as I now leave the in-between and turn to this seemingly solid world of existence. Lying here with eyes still closed and all of my attention still turned in to my inner world, I know she is that which breathes me. I know she lives as me, through me. I open my eyes, still swimming in the feelings of her. And as I rise from my bed, I realize this day is in bulk, and I smile at the way the worlds weave threads together and through, through worlds, through tales, through dreams. In bulk, or Gaelic origin meaning in milk or in the belly, is also known as Candlemas in the Christian tradition. Considered the first day of spring by many, for the Celts, this is a day to celebrate the Celtic-Irish goddess Brigid. As the goddess of fire, of poetry, and of healing, she represents all the creative powers of the inception of spring. And I now see it was she, this goddess of the inception of spring, who moved me in this dream. 
In the dream, I came to life, like this mortal world does when spring works her magic. But here's the thing about dreams. Dreams are not real life. Or are they? There are worlds where bodies are not flesh, yet move as if. Sometimes when I sleep, I have experiences, rich, full, vibrant experiences, as if I am in a body where I know I exist, where I know I am with another, where I know I am alive in another world. I had them with my husband not long after he passed. They were not dreams. They were not fairy tales. They were real experiences of of an existence beyond or alongside of matter. This morning's in-bulk dream was an experience that limbed the holiness of this existence, limbed this precipice of new love for soul, emerging with spring's beginning, with the first flush of life showing herself above ground, warm still from earth's fertility, fluid as the aquifers underground, she breathes life into me. In a way, I know Brigid. When I was in Ireland a few years ago, I sat at her wells, drawn down into the waters that hold her light. I stood on the earth where women, committed to her truth and love, kept her flame burning for hundreds of years. And I sat with her flame, relit by two women committed to bringing this truth and love back to a world both afraid of and hungry for Brigid's love, a love that limbs life. In the experience of this morning, I lie awake in this liminal space at the threshold between worlds, fully alive in my body-soul of matter, of light and dark, on the precipice of knowing self as whole and fluid and alive, inhabiting many layers of existence, here I knew and know myself as a promise offered by the one, a potential offered by life to life for life. I am a promise of life offered by the one. We each are offered this promise to honor or not, to live or not, to embody or not. This promise must be fed, nurtured, and sustained. This promise is potential, latent, unless we follow the thread of longing that calls us to know it and live it. For me, the call to live this promise has been like an insatiable Pac-Man on a bender. Yet I've also lingered on the edge. The lure of others to hold me up, to keep me safe, to mirror to me who I am, and even to own me so I don't have to own myself, has been strong. It can feel easier to own another, or be owned by another, than to own one's responsibility to this promise. But this day, this day of Imbolc, this day of spring, when the seeds sown long ago are poised, ready to sprout up out of the soil, this day, before the one, I vow to own myself. I own this promise. I take responsibility for my life and to live what life desires through me. I take responsibility to feed myself what my soul is hungry for and to live what is dying to be lived through me. 
Limbed by love and rooted in the soil of my own becoming, I take this pledge to live this promise, this promise that I am. And I too, I too still want to make a promise to another. And I want a promise to be made. The one who wants me to make and keep promises to myself and him as he does the same. But this promise to live myself is not the same kind of promise. This promise from the one is the promise that all other promises are born from. No other promises can live unless this one is kept. I am not naive. Promises are tricksy things. As I feel this dream alive in my cells, still, even now, what I know is that I must keep this promise to my own being, to my own soul, with the help of grace. And when I do not, and I then realize I have not, I come back to the promise that I am, root again in the deep, fertile ground of my own becoming, rooted so that spring can do with me what it does with all of existence. Grace is not a tricksy thing. Grace makes no mistakes. This dream came on in bulk, a dream in which life spoke into and through me in a language my cells intimately know. This is the language of promise and potential that cells follow unless we forget the language and until we remember it again. It is the language that intimately knows the holiness of the promise of the One. So, keys and locks, leather jackets and cotton dresses, gossamer gowns and golden braids, transgressive and gracious, tears and flaming hearts, fairy tales and reality, day and night. Four, craning to connect. Nor will she leave, nor will he. And promises kept and lost, promises forgotten and remembered. Yet, limbed by youth, limbed by promises, limbed by conditions. Or, limbed by me, limbed by lies, limbed by loss, limbed by love. But, what if... What if naked and released from the spell we were limbed no more? What tricksy business freedom brings. <laughs>